Good afternoon, if that's what time you're listening to this, and welcome to the week. Uh, this is The Scramble, our Monday program with the Colin McEnroe Show, where we try to react to, well, I'll put it a different way. A lot of our shows are playing weeks in advance. This is the show we don't play in weeks in advance. Um, I'll tell you some of the things we're talking about today. A little bit later in the show, uh, one of the big uh, news items of the weekend uh, was the dismissal or the acceptance of resignations, I guess I should say, of um, most of the U.S. attorneys. Uh, who submitted resignations. Uh, Preet Bharara, the U.S. attorney in New York, did not submit a resignation and therefore was fired. We'll talk about the meaning of that uh, with uh, with one of the reporters who's covering it. And then uh, in our final segment today, and this kind of all fits together kind of in in an interesting way uh, with a tweet that came from Iowa Republican Congressman Steve King who, um, in backing some of the ideas about Muslims espoused by uh, Geert Wilders in in the Netherlands, said you can't rebuild civilization using other people's babies. What does that mean exactly? Well, what we think it means, particularly given uh, Steve King's history of comments uh, about Muslims and Muslim assimilation, is that he doesn't really believe that Muslims who are born here uh, assimilate successfully and become linchpins of whatever he considers to be uh, U.S. civilization. Well, we're going to talk to a Muslim writer about that, a Muslim writer who says in his experience, and also given the slim amount of research there is about this, Muslims assimilate pretty much the way everybody else does. All right, but we're going to begin with a story that you know something about, but you probably don't know much about. Uh, if you know much about the January 29th raid in uh, Yemen, you probably know about the death of a Navy SEAL, uh, Ryan Owens, uh, that was very much uh, uh, memorialized at uh, the national address by President Trump. And you might not know anything else. I mean, you might know a little bit of controversy about it. Um, But uh, if you haven't read the reporting by our next guest, the excellent reporting by our next guest, first of all, I don't think you understand what happened on the ground, uh, what happened to that village. And you might not also understand some of the foggy questions about what the rationale for this raid was, uh, how it got approved, and whether it did the thing that it was maybe supposed to do. There's a lot of fog of war around this one. So joining us right now is Iona Craig, freelance journalist. In 2016, uh, she won the UK's Orwell Prize for her reporting on the Civil War in Yemen. Uh, Previously, she won the UK's Martha Gellhorn Prize for investigative journalism for her reporting on America's covert war in Yemen. Uh, She has written a superb piece uh, on this raid. I put it up about a week ago or so uh, on Facebook, an awful lot of people. And I, I, I think I tagged it with this is why journalism is important, uh, and a lot of people have chimed in since then on, on my page. Anyway, Iona Craig, uh, welcome to our conversation. Thanks very much for having me. So um, maybe you could just in a nutshell remind people what, what we know did happen uh, in this uh, small Yemeni village on January 29th. Um, well, about... Shortly after 1 a.m. in the morning, around 30 U.S. Navy SEALs uh, stormed into this village on a mountainside in central Yemen. Uh, The SEALs were coming in from the low ground, and the village is spread out up a hill. Um, And when they came into the village, certainly the men there, they assumed it it was their enemy, which is the Houthi rebels, as they're called in Yemen, who they've been fighting since um, the end of 2014. 
And so every man within um, within hearing distance of a gunshot came running to defend the village. Um, what then happened is um, one U.S. Navy SEAL was, was shot um, quite soon after that gunfight erupted. And the first few buildings at the bottom of that hill of the village appeared to be the target the Navy SEALs were going after. There were two households there. Um, but the U.S. Navy SEALs were quickly pinned down by fire. Then um, they called in um, helicopters for air support um, when they was clear that they were in trouble. And those helicopters then proceeded to strafe the whole of the rest of the village, um, which was filled, obviously, with civilians. And drone strikes were also used in their strikes um, to destroy one of those houses, which contained several women and children as well, before they then left. And as they were trying to leave, the um, osprey that was dropped in to extract them crash-landed. And so they had to be extracted by another um, helicopter, and that osprey was then destroyed, and that was sort of $70, $75 million worth of equipment. So they lost. One Navy SEAL and several were injured. And in the village, um, 26 villagers were killed. And um, there were, on top of that, some al-Qaeda militants who were also killed, low-level al-Qaeda militants. Um, but amongst all of that, at least um, 10 children under the age of 13 were killed, the youngest being just, just three months old and also an unborn baby because um, the, a pregnant woman was shot in the stomach and later lost her baby. So obviously, this the, the human cost here is staggering and it's upsetting, um, and, and we're going to spend some time talking about that. But before we do, I just want to call people's attention to a point you made right at the beginning there. And uh, obviously, the situation in Yemen is a complicated one, uh, and it's one that Americans probably haven't followed all that carefully. Um, but uh, in a weird way, I mean, if the U.S. can be said to have picked a side. Um, in in the dispute in Yemen, this village was expecting to be attacked by the other side. As you said, they thought when when the the first you know uh, attack was heard that it was it was the Houthi rebel side. That's the side that we oppose. That's the, the side that this village expected to be attacked by. So in a way, I mean, the village was being attacked by us, a putative sympathizer in these struggles. Yeah, exactly. In effect, um, the U.S. was attacking its own allies in, in this war in Yemen. Um, the men in that village, and in fact, one of the to- apparent targets of, of the raid, um, certainly one of those houses that came under the heaviest fire, was the home of a, a tribal leader who was leading a large fraction of the anti-Houthi fighters that had just picked up salaries from the U.S.-supported um, coalition and uh, the day before had started handing those out amongst the, the fighters, and in fact was also arranging to do more of that at that moment when the SEALs raided the village. They were having a meeting in his house, and amongst the things they were discussing was also handing out the rest of the money he just picked up from the Saudi Arabian-led coalition base, um, the nearest base to them. And of course, the Saudi-led coalition is, is supported by the U.S. Right. So, and and just to further flesh that out for people who are listening, so the Houthi rebels are thought to be uh, sponsored by uh, Iran to some degree, and, and that is really kind of what tinctures our involvement with the other side, I would say. This is a little bit like the old politics of the Cold War, where we would go into a place like Somalia and just pick the side that we didn't think was a Soviet sal- satellite. So, um, 
so that's the way things were on January 28th. In this village opposed the Iranian-sponsored Houthis. We opposed the Iranian-sponsored Houthis. You could assume that uh, they'd be on the same side. I would assume, after ha- having sustained all these casualties, having seen their, their 10 of their children, including uh, a baby, having seen wives and sisters and mothers uh, torn up by, by, uh, by armaments, that they don't think of themselves anymore as being on the same side of any con- conflict uh, as the U.S. Um, not at all. No, there was a, a lot of anti-American sentiment, particularly anti-President um, Trump sentiment, amongst the villagers that I spoke to, from the women as well as the men. And actually, it wasn't the first time I'd been in that area. Um, there's a group of villages um, in that area called Yakla, and um, I'd been there back in 2013 to report on a on a drone strike under the Obama administration that had killed 12 civilians. And in fact, um, the groom, it was a wedding convoy that was hit, and the groom of that wedding had survived that drone strike but was in fact killed in this raid on January 29th. Now, at that time when I went down there, the the sentiment was very much anti the Yemeni government. They were very angry at the the president then, President Hadi, because they felt the drones and the drone strikes had turned up after he had uh, he was elected in Yemen in a one-man ballot in, in 2012. So they were very angry at, at Hadi and, and their own president, but this time the anger was very much directed towards um, America and the, the SEALs um, and, and, and President Trump particularly. Um, and, uh, also, you know, there was obviously anger at their own government as well, but, yes, this was much more anti-American sentiment particularly given the number of, of obviously women and children that had been killed. Was there, I mean, is it possible to know whether there was some kind of um, al-Qaeda on the Arab Peninsula um, presence there? I mean, I think you write about the fact that there were, there seemed to be, a, for example, one fairly newly constructed building in the village. Yeah, I mean, actually, it wasn't that newest one that was necessarily housing them. There was a building just behind it that belonged to um, a, a man in the village, and I was told that that was being used as a guest house by al-Qaeda militants. Now, in this civil war, al-Qaeda has also been fighting, and it's actually been fighting against the, the Saudi-led coalition over the last year in, southern, in some of the provinces in Yemen further south. But actually, in this province, they've been fighting on the front lines as well against the Houthis. So it appeared to be they were using that building as a guest house in, in which to move to and from the front line of the fighting um, and had been staying there. Now, the villagers told me they didn't know the men who were staying in that house and they didn't associate with them in any way and didn't even know their names. So Al-Qaeda did actually provide a list of names of people that were killed during the raid and eight of those appeared to be aliases, which is what Al-Qaeda uses quite often to disguise the identity of their, of their own men. And they were not named that, that um, the villagers gave me a list of casualties, um, and they weren't known to them either. So there seem to be at least two parallel narratives about why the United States was attacking uh, this village on that particular day, right? One of them is intelligence gathering, just getting some kind of uh, get, getting, you know, whether it's hard drives or, or whatever, getting some kind of actually in- intelligence that's located there. Uh, the other one being to take out uh, a high-ranking al-Qaeda official. Do we know which one of those stories is true? Well, um, initially, the the White House and American officials were all saying it was about intelligence gathering. But I think 
you know, um, even somebody who's not a military expert to, to go charging into a, a highland village in the middle of a civil war to pick up cell phones and, and perhaps laptops is a pretty um, unlikely uh, reason to, for, for taking such a high-risk mission. Um, but no, certainly from my sources, and it appears now, you know, since the end of last week, that even Pentagon is coming around to admitting this, that they were actually going after a man called Captain Al-Raimi, who was the leader of Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, or AQAP, as they're known in Yemen, which is the local franchise, um, who they, their intelligence obviously told them was in the village at the time, um, villagers told me he definitely wasn't, and he certainly wasn't killed because he released a statement shortly after the raid um, mocking uh, President Trump and, and the whole mission itself. Um, and so, I, I mean, the, the, the other questionable thing about this is that um, they knew as they were going in that, um, that, that they had been rumbled, i.e. they knew the U.S. Navy SEALs, when they were going in, that their mission was compromised, that the people in the village or al-Qaeda militants who were there knew that they were coming. And yet the decision was made to still go in at that point. And I think that um, alone brings a lot of que- you know questions to both the risk that that puts on the American forces, obviously, um, as well as to what unfolded afterwards in you know this, this huge gunfight and then the risks that were put um, on civilians as well as a result of, of that decision. Right. So just to sort of uh, help people understand, too, uh, the villagers had seen seen or heard helicopters the day before uh, where they don't usually hear or see helicopters that had made them uh, on an alert. Uh, also, just to remind you, these villagers are pretty heavily armed because, in fact, there is a civil war going on in Yemen. They are part of it. Uh, they are these this is these are people who are prepared to grab their guns and repel attacks, particularly attacks that they they think they know are coming. Uh, so let's just hear how this got described uh, in the United States. This is Sean Spicer, spokesperson for the Trump administration. The raid, the the action that was taken in Yemen was a huge success. American lives will be saved because of it. Future attacks will be prevented. The life of Chief Ryan Owens was done in service to this country, and we owe him and his family a great debt for the information that we received during that raid. I think any suggestion otherwise is a disservice to his courageous life and the actions that he took. Full stop. Now, uh, Iona Craig, we do know that one piece of intelligence that uh, the government exhibited and claimed had been worth going in for turned about out to be 10 years old and easily available on the on the Internet. So uh, is is there any justification for what Sean Spicer says? In other words, did something come out of this raid that will save American lives? I mean, I probably can't answer that question because um, I haven't had access to what they say they've got their hands on. Um, but uh, I think, you know, just like that, that, that statement that he made there that you just played, for me, that was sort of like red back to a ball. That was one of the main reasons I, I knew I had to go to the village because I was in Yemen at the time when the raid happened and immediately it was quite obvious that there was a high civilian um, death toll and, and a lot of casualties. And for the White House then to spin it as this great success, um, you know, under the Obama administration, yes, civilians were being killed as well in operations in Yemen, um, but uh, a lot of the time they were remaining completely silent about it. Um, but to turn around and sort of claim that this raid was, was such a success when it absolutely, you know, it was quite clear at that point that something had gone terribly wrong, um, 
that I knew then uh, that it, it was, if, if it was possible to go, that it was pretty essential to, to really establish what, what had happened because whatever was being said by the White House and then later by the Pentagon about this intelligence that was coming out, there was something that was really off about it. Um, and so, yeah, I then made the decision to, to, to get there and, and to, uh, to find out what had happened. But I spoke to the villagers about, you know, what houses did they get into and the house that I mentioned that had was apparently been used as a guest house by al-Qaeda militants, the, the Navy SEALs never got into that, that, that building because um, when they came under fire, obviously the, the militants that were in there were doing a lot of the fighting, and that house was hit by a drone strike um, before the SEALs could get into it. So the only other the houses that, that they came within close contact to were the ones that belonged to the, to the Sheikh al-Bahad, the leader that I, that I mentioned who was who was handing out the wages for, for the anti-Houthi fighters. Um, when I asked them, you know, what, did they get in there and take stuff, um, nobody could really answer that question because they said, listen, there was so much chaos going on, we don't know who went in where, and, 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 and it was pitch black, obviously. They don't have night vision goggles like U.S. Navy SEALs would, would probably be wearing. Um, so, yes, they couldn't really answer that question about whether they'd actually physically got into the buildings and, and taken stuff out or not. So, I mean, just uh, once again, recap a, a whole bunch of these things. Uh, first of all, this raid, we haven't really mentioned this, this raid was approved by President Trump over dinner, which is an unusually casual, convivial circumstance uh, for presidents to be uh, approving military raids, raids that uh, obviously had some implicit risk uh, in them. This is a raid in which uh, um, this Navy SEAL, Ryan Owens, died, but also uh, 26 civilian casualties, including 10 children uh, under the age of 13. Uh, it's still not entirely clear uh, what the purpose of the raid was. Uh, if it was intelligence gathering, as Iona Craig just said, uh, the building that would have had the most intelligence in it was basically reduced to rubble um, because, in fact, that was the building from which fire was also coming, uh, which also raises some question about planning. If this really were an intelligence gathering mission, maybe you'd try to do it in such a way that you didn't wind up blowing the place that had the intelligence in it up. Um, as we also said before, there there's some reason to believe the village knew that some kind of raid was coming uh, as a result of things that they'd heard the day before. All of that, you know, would make you think maybe this is something you would want to know more about. Maybe we don't entirely understand uh, why Ryan Owens and all these Yemeni people uh, lost their lives uh, on that date. Here's uh, General Joseph Votel, the Pentagon's top Middle East commander, uh, talking about um, what will happen next, which, spoiler, is nothing. I am responsible for this mission. We lost a lot on this operation. We lost a valued operator. We had people wounded. We caused civilian casualties, lost an expensive uh, aircraft. I'm looking for indicators of, of uh, incompetence or poor decision-making or bad judgment. I was satisfied that uh, none of those indicators that I identified uh, to you were present. Well, geez, I could actually, I don't even know anything about this. I've just been reading our guest reporting. I could probably point them in a few directions. We've been talking to Iona Craig, freelance journalist uh, who covered this, and you should absolutely read uh, her piece in The Intercept about it. But um, just last question, is this where this story ends? Maybe it ends there for the purposes of that one particular American general. From the point of view of people living in the area, I assume one way it doesn't end is in the deep radicalization of people who've now lost children and, and wives and sisters and babies uh, who I would assume are more easily turned toward the purposes of al-Qaeda. 
Yeah, certainly it's a, it's a propaganda win in that respect for al-Qaeda. But it also didn't end for them that night. That The village was straight again and on the drone strikes repeatedly on the 2nd of March and for four consecutive nights when there was a sudden uptick in, in U.S. airstrikes over the space of 36 hours. America carried out more strikes in Yemen than had happened in the whole of 2016. And the village was at the center of that again. Um, and two more children were killed, uh, aged 10 and 12, and another three men were killed as well. So the village is now empty. Everybody is displaced. Um, so not only have they lost their women and children, they've also like, now lost their homes, essentially. They haven't got anywhere to live. The senior sheikh in the village is living under trees several miles away from the village, and I've been in regular contact with him since then. So, yes, um, if, if, you want to, if you want a lesson in how to, to raise anti, you know, anti-American sentiment and perhaps, as you mentioned, even radicalize young people in the process, then this is probably a good lesson in how to do that. All right. Well, Iona Craig, thank you so much for your reporting on this. We'll post it up on our page at WNPR.org. It's in The Intercept. It's a must-read if you want to understand this better. We've only just scratched the surface of it in this conversation. So let's take a break. We'll talk about some other cheerful topic after this. Welcome back to The Scramble. This is the show that we don't, every week, plan far in advance. We plan it not at all in advance because we want to be able to tell you about things that are happening right now. One of the things that happened over the weekend, uh, obviously, was the shakeup uh, among U.S. attorneys. Uh, and uh, in, within that shakeup, there was one big headline, and that was Preet Bharara, uh, U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York. He was one of 46 U.S. attorneys appointed during the Obama administration. Uh, they had remained in their jobs uh, after the inauguration of Donald Trump, uh, and those 46 were uh, asked to resign on Saturday. Preet Bharara refused uh, and was fired. Uh, joining us now to tell us more about this uh, is Josh Gerstein, White House reporter for Politico. Welcome to our conversation. Hey, good to be with you. So this isn't unusual uh, in some ways. Uh, in other words, the, the kind of wholesale house clearing of U.S. attorneys uh, is pretty typical among presidents, although it has seemed in the last two administrations that you know you, maybe you kind of hang on to a couple of people who are notable for having uh, major ongoing investigations. Uh, they tend to be the names that people know, right? So Patrick, Patrick Fitzgerald uh, held over uh, in the Obama administration for a politically relevant uh, investigation into Rod Blagojevich and, and other work that he'd done. He'd been the prosecutor in Scooter Libby. You go back to George W. Bush. I think Mary Jo White uh, got held over for a while, didn't, right. uh, didn't get purged. So it's both true that they swing the axe uh, and, and clear out the house, but they, it's also true that they typically retain some key players. Uh, yeah, that's exactly right. I think you, you've, you've captured it. Uh, and, and the dispute in recent I would say we're really at decades now, has been about how that axis swung, how swiftly, how broadly, uh, and sort of how much notice uh, people uh, are given. Uh, the Preet Bharara situation is somewhat quirky in the sense that he had this very high-profile meeting in November at Trump Tower with President Trump, then emerged to say that he was staying on as U.S. attorney. And so that, you know, it's not really a question of necessarily being improper to dismiss any of the U.S. attorneys, but it's a tad odd, I guess you might say, if he was told he would stay on 
to see him uh, essentially forced out uh, about seven weeks into uh, the Trump administration. And it's still a little unclear uh, what happened and why whatever agreement was apparently cut back in November didn't um, save Barrara from being um, caught up in this most recent wave of departures. He, he claims that that's why he initially uh, didn't acquiesce to the first directive he got from the Justice Department saying he was supposed to resign because he felt he had um, essentially cut a separate deal directly uh, with President Trump. And, and that's what led to, I think, some of the machinations uh, over the weekend. Right. And it wasn't just with President Trump. I think Jeff Sessions was uh, uh, president at that November uh, meeting uh, and where Barrara was supposedly praised for the work that he had done uh, and assured that he would be retained. Um, and, you know, there's a whole lot of subtext to this. And so let's try to unpack a little bit of it anyway. I mean, part of this might be that Barrara, probably more than anybody in government right now, is symbolic of going after high-paid, more or less Wall Street-based, white-collar criminals. I mean, there's certainly there's some people who say, well, he didn't really get it done. He didn't really punish uh, enough of the people or really any of the people associated with the 2008 economic collapse. But on right. the other hand, you know, if, if anybody's ever gone after some of these people, it's been him. And that was a little bit of Donald Trump's campaign rhetoric, too, right? That the government was essentially too soft on Wall Street. He, Donald Trump, was more of a man of the people. Right. Uh, although this was always a, a bit of a point of confusion, I think, among the, in the Trump campaign and with the Trump rhetoric, right? I mean, because he did campaign, uh, you know, railed against Hillary Clinton and her connections to Goldman Sachs. Then he goes ahead and brings a bunch of people into his administration uh, who held prominent roles there, including his, uh, you know, senior advisor and sort of chief strategist, uh, Steve Bannon. Uh, so, you know, I could definitely see many people in Trump world being suspicious of Preparara because of some of the things he did in the area of, of insider trading and prosecuting hedge fund uh, tipsters and things along those lines and his, his aggressive uh, um, his aggressive record in that area. At the same time, you're quite right. You would think that uh, someone sort of crusading against Wall Street might fit in with some of the more po populist elements of Trump's uh, campaign rhetoric. It just, I guess, depends on how sincere you consider that rhetoric and whether it would be Trump would be more inclined to follow it or more inclined to listen to sort of the billionaires and the hedge fund magnates um, who are populating his cabinet and, and normally have his ear um, from his history in Manhattan and, and even down at his club uh, in Florida, Mar-a-Lago. Josh Gerstein, to listen to you talk, one would almost think that there were things that Donald Trump said during the campaign that weren't confusing and double-sided <laughs> and, and frequently contradicted. Uh, that might be a much shorter conversation for us to have. So, I mean, another reason that Barrara might have been at least superficially appealing to, to Donald Trump is that he had occasionally gone after uh, Democratic politicians. Uh, Bill de Blasio, I think, is probably relatively happy to see the back of Barrara. Uh, that's that's quite right, uh, because he's investigating de Blasio over sort of campaign finance-related issues at the moment. Uh, there was an earlier investigation that didn't lead to a prosecution, but which Barrara um, mentioned on Twitter, actually, uh, uh, over the weekend, um, involving uh, uh, Governor Cuomo of New York and his involvement with an anti-corruption commission there. Uh, certainly, and then Sheldon Silver, who was the head of the New York State Senate, 
uh, who was indicted under Barrara. So, so there's a lot of uh, New York politicians. I would say most of them probably Democrats, uh, uh, probably because there, there are probably more of them in the New York state government. But uh, they had felt the wrath or the ire of federal prosecutors. And, you know, if Trump was looking to just uh, gore the uh, Democratic ox, if you will, um, Barrara would have seemed to be a logical person to keep on. Uh, but it would have been somewhat inconsistent to keep him and dismiss, you know, just about every other presidentially appointed U.S. attorney. Although we should note that, that Trump is actually keeping two, um, in a sense. Uh, there's one from Northern Virginia named Dana Bente, who's currently acting as the number two official in the Justice Department. Folks might remember that he was installed after the acting Obama appointee who was running justice on a, a temporary basis quit, essentially, or I should say was fired uh, for refusing to defend Trump's travel ban. And then another gentleman named Rod Rosenstein, who's the Maryland U.S. attorney, who is the nominee for the number two job at the Justice Department, but hasn't been confirmed yet. They were apparently immune from this. Uh, they were told to submit resignations, but the resignations weren't accepted. And we still haven't gotten a definitive answer about whether anyone else on that list uh, got some kind of a reprieve. Right. We should uh, observe also Rosenstein is kind of the Timex watch uh, of U.S. attorneys. He takes a licking and keeps on ticking. I believe he was a George W. Bush appointee whom Obama retained. <laughs> now he's being retained by Trump. Right. Uh, and as you said at the beginning, it's not terribly uncommon. There are a lot of career prosecutors uh, who, when people start looking around in districts and saying, well, who would be a good U.S. attorney? Um, in a lot of places, despite the, the partisanship in some quarters, uh, you find a pretty broad consensus that, you know, this person's been doing a pretty good job. Why don't we keep them doing that? And so you end up with people like uh, uh, Pat Fitzgerald, who you mentioned, uh, serving for a long period of time under, uh, I think he stayed all the way into a full term of the uh, Obama administration before uh, before he resigned. And sometimes it does have to do with very high-profile investigations uh, or prosecutions those people are, are pursuing, like um, Fitzgerald was prosecuting the governor, the Democratic governor, Rob Blagojevich of Illinois, uh, over the rather sensitive matter of his efforts to sell um, Obama's Senate seat after he vacated, after Obama vacated it. So sometimes you see those kinds of political sensitivities leading to a decision to just let a prosecutor uh, remain in their position. So uh, there's a couple of other balloons floating around in the air, and we should grab their strings before we run out of time. Uh, another group of people who are probably happy to see the back uh, of Barrara are people at Fox News. Uh, in fact, Sean Hannity had done a segment uh, about how good a good an idea it would be to get rid of some of those Obama Department of Justice uh, holdovers who, who might uh, do some leaking. Well, uh, another reason to get rid of Barrara is he's gone after Fox News. He has. He, he has an investigation underway that we believe is exploring two um, different issues. One is um, sort of improperly aggressive techniques Fox News may have uh, used against journalists who cover Fox News. Uh, many of us have known for years that they are unusually combative, but there are allegations that they actually obtained uh, phone records or voicemails or things along those lines that uh, came from journalists who were covering Fox News uh, and some of the issues there. Uh, and then there's a separate inquiry or a related inquiry going on as to how Fox News accounted for various payments related to Roger Ailes' uh, sexual harassment allegations. There were apparently various settlements paid out over the years, and none of them seem to have been publicly disclosed. And there's questions about, like I said, how they were even recorded on the books of 
Fox News and News Corp. And uh, apparently Barrara was pursuing both those issues, although I, sh- I should- don't think we should assume they'll just go away simply because he goes away. Um, you know, his deputy remains the U.S. attorney there uh, and probably will for some time since the Trump White House doesn't have nominees lined up for any of these uh, U.S. attorney posts as far as we know. Um, let's mention one last way in which Barrara was an interesting piece uh, on the uh, Trumpland board game, and, and that is that you know the, the, there was some expectation that maybe he, partly maybe because of where he's based, which is where Trump's uh, headquarters are, and maybe also because he kind of does have a an ornery or, uh, and obstreperous streak to him. Uh, it was thought by some of the people who are pushing various kinds of uh, ethics movements uh, against the Trump administration, that maybe he would be the guy who, who could carry the load of, say, an emoluments case. And so, I mean, a whole bunch of different watchdog groups had essentially asked if he would do this, um, maybe he having a little bit more standing because of, you know, being in New York, but also because that's kind of his reputation, right? He's not afraid of anybody. Yeah, so they had asked that. There is already litigation underway on that uh, subject um, that's been filed by private parties, two separate suits in New York City that focus in on Trump Tower and the emoluments issue. Um, I think that that kind of um, those requests have been had come fairly late. And so I doubt that they were sort of a motivating factor in getting Barrara uh, dismissed. There's also questions about whether some um, tangent of the Trump investigations into Trump and Russia uh, might have also flowed through the U.S. Attorney's Office in Manhattan, although we think that those probes are being run out of other offices. So, uh, But I think it's fair to say that it's possible people at the White House considered um, is Barrara the kind of person who could turn on them. You know, you, you have to be uh, concerned when you let somebody loose uh, uh, if they're really going to, to end up stinging you. And so I imagine the decision about whether he might do that in the end, might have played into some of the considerations in the White House, say, about whether to um, immunize him or exempt him from the broad dismissal of U.S. attorneys uh, that the White House wanted to, uh, to go forward with, uh, obviously, on Friday. So um, last uh, thing I want to ask you about, yep. uh, Josh Gerstein uh, from Politico, which is, so Preet Bharara is not known for having no ego. There are people who feel like the Paul Giamatti character in the, uh, the Showtime series Billions is based uh, heavily on Preet Bharara and his pursuit, I think, of Steve Cohn. Um, and, and, you know, he had a private Twitter account activated about 30 seconds after this whole thing got resolved. He's probably not going to be a quiet person, but w- we don't really know. I mean, there's all kinds of different ideas. He might run for something uh, conceivably at some point down the line if an independent commission needed uh, a special counsel kind of person. Uh, obviously, uh, he might be an, an interesting pick for that. But nobody really knows what Preet Bharara is going to do next. I assume that's true anyway. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of talk about him having some political prospects um, and interest, although he has repeatedly ruled that out in public. Uh, that said, nobody's quite clear what he would do other than something like that that would give him the kind of profile that he had when he was a uh, U.S. attorney. He comes from sort of, uh, I don't know if you'd say political stock, but he, he's um, a, a former aide and chief counsel to Senator Chuck Schumer, uh, who is also known to be very sort of media friendly and media savvy. And so he, he learned at the knee of Schumer, and it wouldn't be terribly surprising to see Ferrara uh, take some sort of a, a political role. Uh, although, as I say, it's something that he has sort of said was not in the cards for him 
um, in the past, and people are waiting to see where he turns up. I, I can't imagine that the Trump Justice Department would tap him to be an independent um, prosecutor of anything, especially at this point with some apparently bad blood uh, surrounding his departure from the administration. Yeah, no, it would have to be some kind of um, almost like independent 9-11 style commission that had a totally free hand or something like that that uh, they could staff uh, maybe with him as special counsel or something like that. But anyway, for now, we'll have to follow him on Twitter uh, and just see what happens. But thanks very much, Josh Gerstein from Politico. Thanks for being with us and getting us up to speed on this. We've got one more conversation to have, and it's, it is about the question of Muslim assimilation, something that Congressman Steve King of Iowa thinks basically never happens. They just never assimilate, according to him. Thou shall not pester Spicy when he's at the Apple store. Wait until he's buying giant tubs of Orbit gum at Costco. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me, Kyone Wolf. Amanda Fish submitted a resignation, but we did not accept it. The part of Bill Curry was played by Mary Jo White. If you love podcasts, you can find ours on almost any platform. On tomorrow's show, we expect to be snowbound, so enjoy a rebroadcast of our show about what happens when a Simpsons comedy writer goes to North Korea. And now... Back to Colin. Yeah, that show also includes a pretty uh, chilling story uh, of a journalist who inserted herself into North Korea under the guise of being uh, a teacher uh, at a special school there uh, and was very much hoping that she would not be uncovered and very unsure about what would happen if she were uncovered. So anyway, enjoy, enjoy that show. We're, we're really sad because we usually do our NCAA selection show, uh, our bracket show with Julia Pistel and Bill Curry and a host of others. But... We don't really see how we can do that tomorrow, given what's coming. Anyway, speaking of what's coming, we have a final segment here. This was an article, an essay that attracted our interest uh, last week. And now we're really especially happy that we uh, decided to uh, book uh, uh, Eamon Ismail, uh, who's a video editor and producer for Slate.com. Before I bring him aboard, I just want to say, well, happy is probably the wrong word. But um, among the things making news over the weekend is a very bizarre tweet from uh, U.S. Congressman Steve King. He's a congressman from Iowa. Uh, He was tweeting in support of far-right Dutch politician Geert Wilders, uh, who wants to end Muslim immigration there and ban the Koran, even, uh, in the Netherlands. Uh, And uh, so King tweeted, Wilders understands that culture and demographics are our destiny. We can't restore our civilization with somebody else's babies. Well, first of all, I wasn't really sure. I didn't wasn't aware that our civilization had gone somewhere and needed to be restored. But um, uh, Mr. King, since then, has kind of doubled down on that, talking on CNN, talking about the issue of assimilation. He said in the past, I think it was 2015, um, I'm all about assimilation and whatever people whatever people can come here and assimilate, they're uh, they're here and they're here legally. I'm for those folks. Um, he said Iraqi Christians uh, do okay in this culture. But then he said, I can't find models of the folks that, say, do the Hajj to Mecca. I can't find models where they've assimilated into the broader culture of civilization wherever they've gone. So this is a congressman in the United States not only saying that Muslims don't assimilate in the United States, but arguing they don't assimilate anywhere, which is kind of even hard to imagine. But anyway, joining us is somebody who um, is arguing the opposite side of that case, uh, Eamon Ismail, as I said. Welcome to our conversation. 
Hi, hi, thank Hi. Nice to meet you, Colin. How are you? Nice to meet you, too. Am I saying your name correctly? Yeah, Eamon. Oh, good. So, um, uh, you basically, um, even before Steve King had said all this bizarre stuff, um, you were writing about the fact that, in, in many ways, the Trump administration attempts, uh, second attempt now, to ban uh, people entering this country from certain Muslim-majority nations is kind of an argument uh, similar to Steve King's, right? That that somehow or other, this group of people are different from other groups of immigrants who might have come before, that they're simply going to exist in enclaves and, and never really join American society. Is, is, that, is that sort of the, the dog whistle or maybe more than a dog whistle that you're hearing from the Trump administration? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the most important things we need to to do before we even have this conversation is recognize that this kind of rhetoric doesn't originate from Steve King. He sort of just uh, kind of jumped into the limelight with that absurd tweet. Uh, But this is something that sort of existed for the the last decade here in in the States. Um, But, I mean, there might be some truth to the fact that some immigrant families have uh, more trouble assimilating to, I guess you want to say, just general American culture. Uh, but it's certainly not the case that it's either A, impossible, or B, unique to Islam or the Muslim American experience. Uh, but yeah, I do see it as sort of um, as this piggybacking on Donald Trump's very successful rhetoric of saying that there's somehow something inherently different about Islam and uh, the Quran and the Muslim American experience that makes it a threat or makes it um, somehow anti to American or democratic values. Uh, so 100% see it as a sort of uh, an echoing of that same rhetoric. And so in order to have the conversation, in a way, we, we struggle to define that term assimilation. And, and we also, and there are ways in which we, um, we celebrate in America less than total um, assimilation. We like the idea uh, that there are places where you can go to Chinatown uh, or, or Little Italy uh, and there are there's a city not too far from where I'm sitting called New Britain, Connecticut, where there are small neighborhoods where Polish is spoken more dominantly uh, than English is. And in a way, that's like sort of cool in general, right? And I mean, and and many of the things that are being said about it, Muslims were being said about Italians uh, at the beginning of the 20th century. So in a way, do I mean, do we have a working definition of what assimilation even means? I'm not even sure. I mean, when I was growing up, I thought that one of the things that made America so great was its diversity and the fact that anybody can be an American. So I'm I'm not really sure. I mean, I I imagine that assimilation just sort of happens uh, over generations, and then as the culture changes, the people who are born into it sort of are pushing the the culture in different directions. So I don't necessarily see, like, uh, what did Steve King say? He said that uh, we can't restore our civilization as if uh, our civilization doesn't exist anymore, yeah. uh, or, or what that civilization was. And we can't do it with somebody else's babies. And I thought that's what made America so special, was the fact that it was sort of everybody's babies, and everybody came to this, this part of the world to build something great that was wel- welcoming everybody, you know? So I'm not necessarily sure what, he, what an assimilated person even looks like, other than the fact that they just are born and raised in America. Um, one of the few instances of somebody trying to systematically study this question, especially about uh, Muslims, was the Pew Research Center. You, you looked at what they found. I mean, they actually did ask the question, uh, do Muslims assimilate? What did they find? Uh, I think they found like 66% of uh, American Muslims are much more satisfied with their lives here than the, the lives that they left behind. 
and, and that's like a huge, huge statistic to say that these are people who are coming to America and are happy here, you know, that they, they, they sort of made a new home here, that they, they decided is better, you know, uh, and that's sort of a, antithetical to what Donald Trump is saying, where they come and they're not happy and they, they want to destroy it from the inside out. And also uh, in 2007, uh, the Pew released a poll that said that the Americans were, uh, American Muslims were totally assimilated, that there was no sort of growing fringe threat. Uh, so, I mean, I doubt that Donald Trump has these numbers to back him up, but if he does, I'm interested in taking a look at where he might be getting this idea or uh, building this stereotype, I guess, out of thin air. Um, well, let's talk about you. You grew up, you sound pretty assimilated. I mean, when, and in this essay, you kind of do examine your own uh, American experience. What are your takeaways? Uh, I think part of what my, made my experience so special was the fact that uh, when you grow up uh, Muslim in America, there's a, a, lot of, a lot of that gets politicized, and you meet a lot of people who uh, have this impression of what an American Muslim is. And that does have an impact on somebody who's young. I mean, I was uh, 14 years old when, when the Twin Towers came down, and, and my father used to work in, uh, in downtown uh, New York. So when he came home, and I lived in New Jersey at the time, it was, a, it was a traumatic thing for the whole family. We all kind of sat around together and cried together. And then the next day, it, the conversation sort of switched where we, we, we were sort of thrusted onto the other side of it without, without ever having to decide for ourselves. Uh, and I think that is the only really thing that makes the American Muslim experience unique. But otherwise, I, I feel like my childhood could have been maybe more Americanized. But at the same time, uh, it's sort of inevitable that if you raise American kids uh, in America, no matter what their background is, that that's just going to be their, their experience, that they're just going to be American no matter what. And I mean, to, th to this question of whether or not my experience is is inherently different. I don't necessarily think so. I mean, I, I talk to a lot of other first-generation kids, no matter where they're from, they, they tend to have the same kind of um, experiences that I've had, where parents have these certain expectations. They, they want you to celebrate the, the culture that they inherited so that they can sort of preserve it. But at the, at, the, at the end of the day, we still have Thanksgiving dinners together. You know, we, we still have these days off. Um, and that's sort of what makes it all, uh, I guess, fluid in the end. Yeah, I think it is different, though, um, and I think post 9-11 it's especially different. I think Muslims in America are, to a certain degree, judged and approved of in terms of how many things they give up. Um, you know, in other words, uh, you're a better American the less Muslim you become. Uh, your family came from Egypt. Uh, you're a better American the less, less Egyptian you seem. I'm not really sure we've—I mean, I know that in the past— you know, as I mentioned in the beginning of the 20th century, there was uh, there were tremendous nativist movements and distrust first of the Irish and then especially of Italians. And there was probably that kind of sentiment. But I do feel like Muslims are in a special category right now. Like the, the your bona fides gets established by how much of your culture and tradition you're willing to shed. Yeah, and, I, and I've seen that when I was growing up. I mean, uh one of the things that my family did was we bought a bunch of American flags and de decorated our, the outside of our car and decorated the outside of our, our homes. And, and to me, it didn't feel like solidarity with, uh, with, with what happened and sort of a, a trauma thing. To me, it sort of felt like we needed to compensate for the fact that we were Muslim and we needed to, to show others that we, we were American too. Um, and I think that isn't, I mean, it doesn't feel required uh, as other people that aren't Muslim. Uh, but at the same time, I don't know. I think uh, 
part of it being that you're Muslim and you need to compensate is, is a little troubling just because you're not necessarily sure about your own identity anymore. It's like um, if you feel American and you, you feel like you look American, but still when you talk to people for the first time, they're going to have this sneaking suspicion that you're not. And, and that's something that you do kind of need to compensate for. Right. In other words, if, if, you, if our goal as, um, as a multi-ethnic society was to make everybody feel comfortable and have everybody kind of embrace uh, American values at their own pace, but thoroughly, the worst possible thing you could do is create this special stigmatized group of people who, who start winding up feeling as though they're being pressured uh, to do certain things, that they have to do these things as a, a show of force. I mean, it just seems so incredibly counterproductive. Yeah, um, and, that's, and that's, that's exactly why I was so bothered. I think it was in the, the town hall-style debate between Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton during the election when uh, a Muslim in the audience asked him, like, how would you deal with Islamophobia if it were to, to arise and you were elected official? And Donald Trump's answer was very sternly, well, it's up to Muslim Americans to, to tell everybody else that they're American. And that, that was really troubling. And he also made a statement that was, to me, crazy. He was like, well, we wouldn't have the terrorism problem if Muslims did their part and told other people who the terrorists were. Like, I can't, I can't even imagine what that would be like. Like, what he imagines the Muslim American experience is. Like, we're just sitting around having falafel uh, hummus, and people are just like, oh, yeah, we, we want to, like, cause trouble. And we're just like, ah, whatever. We're just trying to tune it out. Eamon Ismail, we're going to have to stop there. We're just flat out of time. But thank you so much for joining us. Read uh, Eamon Ismail's piece at Slate.com.